And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Thomas Kidd, Professor of History and Senior Fellow, Institute for Studies of Religion, Baylor University. Dr. Kidd, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, you've written a number of books on American colonial history, George Whitfield, Patrick Henry, A Religious History of the American Revolution, Baptists in America, and others. And uh, I'd like to ask you to help us look at, if you would, what we might call the soul of America. Um, Perhaps what did the founders believe, and what was the influence of things like the First Great Awakening, basically the influence of Christianity on our country? Right. Well, I mean, it it is pervasive, the influence of Christianity. Um, Of course, a lot of the colonies were originally founded for religious purposes, especially uh, New England colonies and uh, Pennsylvania uh, founded as kind of religious refuges. And then a hundred years after the founding of the early colonies, you have the first great awakening of the 1730s and 40s, uh, which is a, a massive revival of religion. Um, and a surge of evangelical Christianity, and uh, that that really influences all the colonies, uh, but but especially uh, the New England colonies. Uh, of course, the the Great Awakening also influences uh, England and Scotland and Wales, and to an extent even the European continent. So it's not an exclusively American thing, but there there are just deep Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian influences. Uh, everywhere that you look in in America. Now, of course, there there are other ways to look at it. I mean, did did all the colonists come uh, for religious freedom? Uh, no, a lot of them came for for business opportunities. But even those people, if you had been able to do a a poll, would have said that they were uh, Christians. So the vast vast majority of them, and and many of them, uh, read the Bible and um, you, you know went to church if there was one that was readily accessible. Um, and then when you get to the question of uh, the the founding fathers, I mean it, that that's uh, an interesting question too because you know we often focus on uh, this list of say five or six of the major founding fathers, uh, Washington, Franklin, Adams, so those type of people, and you know those five or six people are kind of a mixed bag in terms of what their personal uh, faith was. I mean we we you know Franklin calls himself a deist, so, so we know he's a deist if we take him at his word, um, you know, down to somebody like Patrick Henry, who I did a biography of, was was clearly a, a traditional Christian and uh, would even share his, his faith with people. Um, so they're, they're kind of a mixed bag in terms of their personal faith, but still, I think they, they all would have believed, uh, even the major founders, that religion uh, especially, uh, you know, good religion had had a sanguine effect on American society, and that if you were going to have a republic, uh, which they were trying to uh, create with the revolution and the Constitution, that that you really needed to have adequate uh, sources of virtue, ethics, and morality, um, and they didn't see any reason why you would go searching around for. Uh, to invent any sources of virtue and morality, they, they thought that religion and Christianity, in particular, was the most obvious uh, source of, of virtue for the republic. 
uh, and they saw, thought that at least in a public sense that Christianity was was uh, indispensable that way. So uh, it was extraordinarily uh, important and, and pervasively uh, influential in, in the colonial revolutionary period, though it was not uh, in a in a you know obvious and uncomplicated uncom- way in some, in some cases, especially with uh, the the faiths of the founding fathers. I wonder how likely it would have been that an America would have formed uh, devoid of the influence of Christ. Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it, you know, you can answer it in several different ways. One is, uh, would the colonies have been founded without the influence uh, of Christ? Uh, it, it, say half of them, no. Uh, because they were being founded for specifically uh, religious reasons. Now, you take so- something like uh, Virginia, um, which I think is clearly being established for sort of business mercantile kind of kind of purposes. Um, you know, religion is still reflected in their early laws, and one of the first things they do when they get there uh, is to uh, build a, a little ramshackle church so that they could have church services on Sunday. So even the ones... <laughs> Uh, that are more business-oriented, have that kind of Christian uh, influence. Now, if you fast-forward, you know, 150 years to the American Revolution um, and the the framing of the Constitution, you know, uh, the the Christian influence is always in the background, at least. Um, There is a kind of at least theistic assumption that you see all in the, the Constitution and of the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Um, but I think that it, when you think about why did the American Revolution happen, um, it seems to me that it, it also had some things to do with uh, political power and taxes, too. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, again, it's, uh, it's an issue of pervasive influence. Um, but in terms of what caused independence, I think you would look at many other reasons besides uh, Christianity and, and religion. You wouldn't say that, that Christianity has nothing to do with it, but, it, but the immediate precipitating factors have a lot to do with uh, economics and, and politics, too. Mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, the founders, their view of man— um, perhaps, as we would say, is total depravity, um, helped shape the kind of government that they thought was necessary. Oh, definitely. And, and uh, you know, all the the major founders, um, including somebody like, like Ben Franklin, who, as I said, calls himself a deist, he also has a, a pretty dim view of human nature. Um, and it would have been just conventional among the founders to say, uh, that consolidated political power is dangerous because you can't uh, trust people uh, with unchecked power. I think, in a way, when you when you look at what's happening in the framing of the Constitution and the debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, the, the Federalists promoting the Constitution and the Anti-Federalists opposing it, a lot of the debate that they're having 
is over whether, um, given human nature, the Constitution has the right checks and balances to protect against the consolidation of political power. Um, you know, you know, James Madison in, in the Federalist Papers um, says that government itself is one of the best commentaries on the nature of man. Uh, and he says, if if um, you know people were were perfect, no government would be necessary. Uh, but men are not angels, he says. Therefore, you have to have the right kind of government uh, that plays power against uh, power, and that, that's where it comes in with his famous idea of checks and balances. But the critics of the Constitution said, um, actually, that Madison's Constitution had not gotten the balance right, and they wanted power to be even more dispersed, uh, mainly among the states and localities. And that's uh, a lot of people are surprised to find out that uh, Patrick Henry, the great patriot leader uh, in, in Virginia, ended up being uh, James Madison's most important opponent in the uh, debates over ratification in the Constitution. And the reason that Henry gave is that he said, um, you know, if you have virtuous men uh, serving in office, especially the presidency, he said that this will be fine. But we can't trust that. We can't assume that people uh, will have virtuous leaders. And so he said that he thought that the, the Constitution represented too much of a consolidation of power. So that's an important debate they're having, but there's nobody that's participating in the debate, in the debate who says, oh, yeah, you can trust people because they're naturally good. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing they wouldn't say. They just said, look, we need a government that's powerful enough to do what it needs to do, but not so powerful that it gives too much power to one a person presenting the danger of, of tyranny, and that's that's what the whole debate over the Constitution was about. Mm. What about the whole area of? Um, oh, today we're talking, by the way, with Dr. Thomas Kidd, professor of history, senior fellow, Institute for Studies of Religion, Baylor University. What about the whole area of uh, so-called separation of church and state? Could you give us the background of that, and um, what's the perspective that you have on that? Yeah, I think that um, separation of church and state has become, obviously, just as a hugely controversial political issue in modern America. Um, and, and a lot of that has been refracted through uh, Supreme Court decisions beginning in the 1940s um, about the removal of uh, religion from American public life, uh, whether it be you know, public school prayer or, uh, you know, manger scenes on the courthouse lawn or what, whatever it is. But to the to the Founding Fathers and also uh, evangelical Christians in the era of the Great Awakening and the American Revolution, there was a very important uh, heritage of disestablishment. I, th- I think that you're probably on, on safer ground calling it disestablishment in, in the sense of the First Amendment saying Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Well, what does an establishment mean? I mean, I, I think that's a really important issue to understand, to understand the mentality of the founders on religious liberty. To them, an establishment meant uh, very, one, uh, very easily one simple thing, and that is a state-supported denomination, a tax-supported denomination. They were very familiar with these because most of the colonies had an established church. And, of course, uh, Mother England had an established church, the Church of England. They still have it today. 
uh, a church that receives uh, favorable legal treatment and uh, tax support, and, and people were required to give taxes uh, to to help pay for the erection of churches and the pay, paying of pastors. Um, the established churches had been uh, active and often persecuting religious dissent uh, in England and also in, in the colonies. Uh, the Baptists, in particular, suffered a terrible persecution from the established churches right up to the eve of the American Revolution. In the early 1770s in Virginia, uh, there were Baptist pastors who were being put in jail uh, by the, the authorities in colonial Virginia. Uh, because they refused to comply with the expectations of the establishment. And so the, the founders decided, uh, many of them thought that it was okay to still have state establishments of religion. Uh, Massachusetts continued to have an, an official state church until the 1830s, uh, long after the First Amendment. But most of the founders thought, at least at the national level, we need to not have an official state denomination, uh, national denomination, uh, because uh, the, na the nation is just too diverse among Christian denominations to pick just one. And uh, they, they preferred going the route of, of uh, kind of robust religious liberty and freedom instead of having um, one preferred denomination. Well, you can tell from all that that this does not mean the exclusion of religion from American public life. I think the founders, even someone like like Jefferson, would have imagined that, um, you know, and he, he referred to this in his first inaugural address, that uh, Christianity has this kind of benevolent influence on society uh, that, that we can't do without, and so that if you have freedom freedom to practice, freedom to, to worship, freedom to express your opinions, and so forth, that, that, that this will, even though it may be uh, a source of conflict at times, that it will also, in general, be good for the republic. And none of the founders would have imagined uh, that separation of church and state uh, would mean uh, the exclusion of religion from American public life. Yeah, that's helpful. Another question that came to my mind is, uh, at a lower level, and that is, um, if I were to walk through the streets, let's say, of colonial America, let's say prior to the Declaration of Independence, maybe 50 years prior, 25 years prior, and I see these colonial families, how would you characterize them? What would they be doing? What are they like? Well, you know, again, there is a range. Um, you know, there's some parts of the colonies that are relatively unchurched. Now, the, the, these families, uh, if they had any book, it was likely to be the Bible. Um, and so you might have families in, say, rural Virginia or something like that who might not regularly go to church because the nearest church is 50 miles away, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have family devotions and that, you know, Father would try to do his best to, to lead the family that way. Um, in places like colonial New England, um, especially in the 17th century, uh, so, you know, 100 years before the Revolution, um, church attendance was required by law. And so 100% of these folks are, are uh, going to church unless they have a good excuse. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, the, of course, um, compared to today, uh, Divorce rates and these kind of things are are much much lower, uh, though not unheard of. And and divorce law tended in those days to very much favor men over over women. Um, 
and and so um but but I think you know in general there would have been many assumed things about uh the intact family uh, the value of children uh the importance of uh raising your children in in a faith so I mean those kind of ideas that Christians have about the American colonial past as being uh, you know a, a relatively um you know, intact kind of Christian family situation is certainly not wrong. Yeah. Today we're talking with Dr. Thomas Kidd, professor of history, Baylor University. Uh, Dr. Kidd, I'd like to ask you about the so-called constitutional republic. Uh, I believe that's what we have, and that's what we were given by our founders. Can you help us understand the difference between that and a pure democracy? Sure. Well, I mean, a republic is is basically a system where uh, the people are are represented by the, their elected uh, legislators and, and executives. Where a democracy uh, would be more direct representation of uh, of the people and, and referenda and active participation, presumably by most or all citizens. Um, the the founding fathers uh, certainly did not. Um, have a, a, a positive view of pure democracy, um, and you know whether this is good or bad. I, I, I think you know people would debate today, um, but they thought that you know you, what you need is to have uh, representatives who are qualified to serve, both in terms of experience and knowledge and um, you know moral fortitude. Hopefully, um, that you need those kind of people. To be our representatives uh, and act on behalf of the people, and of course, if the people don't like what they're doing, that these representatives could be uh, voted out. But they associated democracy um, often with mob rule, um, and so it, it's it's I think it's debated when this change actually happens. But many people look at, uh, for instance, the election of Andrew Jackson in 1828, uh, who was uh, the the first of the sort of post-revolutionary uh, founders and more of a populist kind of figure. Um, he's he's one of the first presidents who doesn't wear a wig and buckled shoes <laughs> anymore. <laughs> that, 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 that's the kind of the time when you start to have this more democratic, uh, you know, small-D democratic turn. It also happens that Jackson was the first president of, of uh, the Democratic Party. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think that the founders would have seen what they were doing as definitely creating a republic and, and not a democracy. Mm-hmm. Can you also help us understand the issue of states' rights? We, we certainly have a federal government, but it's, it's not an end-all, is it? No, and, and this goes back to those debates over the Constitution. Uh, we forget, of course, that we are living under the second Constitution of the United States. The first was the Articles of Confederation, which was what it sounds like. It was a confederacy uh, with a very weak national uh, government. Um, and all the, the government amounted to under the Articles of Confederation basically was a, a one-house Congress and, and uh, effectively no executive branch or judicial branch either. And under that system, the the states had an enormous amount of authority and could stop basically any piece of legislation, if, if uh, and especially changes to the Articles of Confederation, if only one state objected. 
Uh, well, Madison, um, Alexander Hamilton thought that we needed a stronger national government. And, it, and of course, that debate ensued about, well, if you put authority at the national level that's supposed to be divided with the states, will this work or will it ultimately become uh, the, the national government become a kind of power-grabbing monster. That's what Patrick Henry said was going to happen. Um, but I think, you know, at least until the American Civil War, uh, it, it was true that the, that the national government was uh, relatively small and innocuous, and most most people in America had no day-to-day -day interaction with the national government at all except for uh, the post office. Um, but, of course, uh, things changed a lot uh, with the, the Civil War, uh, with uh, the um, World War One, World War Two, uh, Franklin Roosevelt social programs, the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, uh, each of these represented a step in, in terms of expansion of the, the scope and ambitions of the national government. And there has, uh, I think, undoubtedly been a uh, decrease in the understanding of uh, what things are, are left to the power of the states. Um, and and you know, we, we've talked about religious liberty and um, separation of church and state. That's uh, a perfect example that uh, I think the founders understood that the states could do what they wanted to with with a uh, with regard to a religious establishment, and that's why uh, a number of the states, especially the New England states, keep having state establishments of religion uh, well after the adoption of the First Amendment. That made perfect sense to the founders because they thought the First Amendment only applied to the national government. Um, and, and, you know, the states could do what they want. Well, fast forward to the 1940s, and you begin to have the incorporation, that's the technical legal term, of, of the various precepts of the First Amendment and other parts of the Bill, Bill of Rights, uh, the incorporation of those so that they were understood to apply also to state laws. And, and so they, they say, well, now the states do not have any flexibility on the issue of religious establishments because the First Amendment applies to the states. And whether we agree with that in principle, I, don't, I personally don't like religious establishments. I don't like the idea of a government-run church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just a bad idea in principle. Uh, but but uh, I'm concerned that over time uh, the, the states have been kind of increasingly marginalized and given leftovers of kind of go government responsibilities and the national government's approach in both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations has, has been uh, you must comply, the states, on, on all issues that we consider to be important. And so now you see that the, that the national government has gotten involved in, in many issues related to education, for instance, and, and the, the size and scope and ambition has increased ever, ever more. Um, and I think one of the reasons I, I like Patrick Henry is that I see him as issuing uh, uh, a good warning in, in 1787 and 88 about uh, not so much the immediate consequences of the American Constitution, uh, but what it could possibly uh, become. And he said, in particular, if you give the national government the power to tax, which the Articles of Confederation did not have, amazingly, it had no taxing authority. Oh, that's neat. If you can imagine a national government that could not tax. <laughs> 
And Henry said, if you give this new national government under the Constitution the power to tax, one day you will come to regret it. It will become a monster, inexorably. Yeah. Um, and, and as we've just uh, passed tax day, uh, sometimes I think he must be right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you... You often hear the concern that where federal money goes, there goes control. Mm-hmm. And so you, you always lose control whenever uh, you're partaking of of the goods from the federal government. We've got maybe two minutes to wrap up some thoughts here. Um, two things. One is I want to get to your books and how people can get a copy. But uh, first, um, if you were to suppose that you had the ear of a, of a leader today, maybe I'm thinking some kid that's grown up has great interest in in government, um, in civics, as it used to be called. Um, if they got into government and they wanted to be a good, faithful leader, consistent with um, our Constitution, let's say, any advice you might have for this young person? Well, I think that certainly, as you would expect me to say as a historian, I mean, it, it's, it really is important to be familiar with the life stories and the ideas of the Founding Fathers. Uh, not that they were perfect. Uh, they, they, they certainly were imperfect, just like I'm imperfect. Uh, but they, they sure did set an, uh, an excellent example for us, I think, in terms of ideas about government, ideas about what a republic is. Uh, ideas about how a republic needs uh, virtue and and ethics and um, public spiritedness, mm-hmm. um, and 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 if we are constrained uh, by the Constitution, which which I think we sh- we should be, then I do believe that there is a, a, a burden to understand what the the founders were trying uh, to do. Uh, sometimes they disagreed among themselves about what they were trying to do, and that's and that's fair enough. But I think understanding their lives and their original intent and so forth is something that I would hope that all political leaders in America uh, take time to understand. Mm, helpful. You have a new book coming out, I believe, American Colonial History, Clashing Cultures and Face. Right. It's just, uh, just out brand new from Yale University Press. Yeah, so... Uh, how might uh, a listener get a copy of that and any of your other books? Sure. Well, with that, on American colonial history or my biographies of George Whitfield or Patrick Henry, any of my books, uh, you can certainly find them at Amazon.com if you just search on Thomas S. Kidd uh, or Barnes & Noble. And if you go to your local bookstore, they can sure order them for you if they don't have them on the shelf. That's wonderful. It's an honor, Dr. Thomas Kidd to have you on the program with us today and dear listener you can listen to this again up on our website we're found at redeemerbroadcasting.org Thomas thank you so much for joining us thank you very much and dear listener please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer